As humans, we often struggle with context when it comes to our faith and regularly fail to apply the Word of God in our daily lives. Verita's podcast is a weekly Bible study led by Rev. C.B. Samuel and through it, we try to understand and locate the roles we are called to play in the world we live in by delving into the teachings of the Holy Bible. We welcome you to join us in learning more from the Word of God and in learning how to live out meaningful lives as Christians. So I'm continuing my study on the Holy Spirit. And uh, last time we looked at the book of Isaiah. And in fact, uh, when we consider the prophetic books, Isaiah has much to say about the Holy Spirit and specifically about the Spirit coming on the servant or the Messiah and which is a very clear picture of the missional character of the Holy Spirit. And that I think is very true when we look at all the prophetic books and uh, the fact that the Spirit of God continues to uh, complete the work that God has in mind in the world and is purely done by the Holy Spirit. And that is basically what we see when we come to the prophetic book. And today I want to look at Jeremiah and to some extent in the book of uh, Ezekiel. Now, uh, both of them have uh, said, you know, have references to God's new beginning with the people of Israel and which is the context in which the Holy Spirit is talked about. And uh, so the whole uh, understanding of the Holy Spirit uh, in terms of the Spirit's presence among us uh, is uh, specifically uh, connected to the new beginning that okay. God has in my mind. The Holy Spirit, right from the beginning, has been involved in whatever God was doing. And we, as I said, there are many references to the Spirit's working. But the prophets very specifically said, that God was going to do something new. And in that new work of God, the Holy Spirit is a significant uh, player. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it uh, somehow gives the feeling from the prophetic books, it is the new beginning which is very central. So it's not simply uh, God giving us a new relationship with God, but also something that God was doing, which was totally new. And the Holy Spirit functions in his own way in ensuring the work of God is completed. And uh, this morning in my own uh, reading of the scripture, I was reading the passage which, uh, you know, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and uh, it was the time when uh, the Passover meal towards the last part of Jesus's, uh, you know, life on earth, you know, where he was arrested and then crucified. Uh, he comes to Jerusalem, I think, the week before or the, uh, the Passover, uh, the Sabbath before. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, uh, the passage says that Jesus uh, prepared, he told the disciples to go and uh, you know, untie a colt that they would find that if somebody asks, uh, 
what you know, what are they doing? And then Jesus will tell, you know, Jesus told them that they have to say that uh, the ma master wants it. Now, I suppose they had no idea what they were doing because later on, one of the gospel writers say that uh, disciples didn't know what they were doing later after Jesus resurrected from the dead is when they started understanding many things that Jesus did. Of course, they understood what Jesus was saying uh, about his death later on. But what Jesus did, and I found it very interesting, he told them to bring this donkey and uh, he sat on it. And then the Bible says that he went to Jerusalem and there were crowds which had gathered and around, you know, around him, it says in front and back, and they put cloth, uh, clothes, uh, their cloth on the road. And then they sang the song Hosanna in the name of the highest. And there was no uh, prompting or no uh, you know, command of Jesus other than to bring the donkey and he sat on it. And I asked myself the question, what suddenly triggered off uh, this kind of a welcome for Jesus? because uh, the disciples didn't understand the significance of it. Neither did the people understand it. It's not as though it's the, that Jesus was returning back after having uh, won a great battle or uh, Jesus had uh, told them that this is what they should do. It is very simple that you know in this visit, and this is not the first time Jesus was coming, to Jerusalem, he came many times before, and uh, there was nothing, no other advance information. And uh, he, they, he comes in and the crowd gathers and they sing that song. And very interesting is that it was an event perhaps not planned other than by God and Jesus himself. Jesus knew what was happening, but the people had no idea as to what they were doing and uh, the scripture says this was in order to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah had said about the Messiah arriving. And I, I was saying to myself that there was no way in which the people knew what they were doing. The disciples didn't know, but it fitted into the plan of God and uh, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. There was no explanation. All that they did was they rejoiced with Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And in this fashion, it was not as though as soon as they saw the donkey on and Jesus riding and they remembered the scripture and they began to sing. There is nothing uh, referring to that kind of things that triggered. And all that we know is that many times, you know, what we do, uh, we are prompted by the spirit of God to do something uh, and later on, we realized that this was a very important part of God's great plan. And uh, that is basically what happens with the Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit prompts us to do things which we may not think of as something which is very significant. Or even if we are enjoying it, not knowing what we are doing, the spirit always has that. And, uh, you know, I was talking and you know, Selena and I were discussing this about how very often the spirit puts on our heart uh, to do something. Uh, and of course, when we do it, we don't talk and there is no, you know, spirit telling us in a loud, clear voice to do it. 
but we feel the spirit actually prompting us to do something which we were not planning to do. <laughs> like for instance, say, I think yesterday <coughs> we called someone for no reason at all, you know, just the fact that uh, her, uh, you know, her name came to my mind and Selena and I were talking and I just called her um, because uh, we're quite close to her and her husband. And um, I just want she, she was surprised that I called and we, I said, it's been a long time, how are you doing? And uh, then after I finished talking, Selena was continuing to talk to her. And then Selena finished the call and said, it's interesting how we called her because she was pouring out her heart and Selena was inquiring from her as to how was the family and her daughter she was telling is going through major depression. She's, I think, 24 or something. The lockdown affected her so badly that she just is going through a major, you know, depression and they are, that she's being treated. And we know her. We know that little girl from the time that, you know, that girl from the time she was little. And, uh, you know, and, and just the fact of, you know, and the lady was telling Selena that she was happy that she called because perhaps she just wanted to pour out her heart. And, you know, many times what we do is not what we plan to do. And, uh, and it's just the, you know, prompting of the Holy Spirit when we obey it. And then we realize that God's Spirit has his own way of fitting us into the agenda of God. And uh, so when we come to the prophets, we begin to see that uh, God uh, introduces the work of the Holy Spirit in a particular way so that we begin to see the, the place of the Holy Spirit in terms of what God is doing. And of course, unfortunately, today, the place of the Holy Spirit is basically in terms of, uh, you know, gifts of the Holy Spirit and uh, significant, uh, extraordinary working, which all may be true, but I think aligning it into God's total plan is something that the Bible talks about. So especially the prophets and uh, Jeremiah uh, doesn't have, and uh, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel don't have as many references as we have in the book of Isaiah. But the context of Jeremiah talking about the Holy Spirit, even though the word itself is not used as it is used in Ezekiel, is the fact you find in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, when God, when he tells in chapter 31 and verse 31, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness 
and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah uh, introduces this whole area of God's working uh, in a way that uh, he talks about a new covenant. And uh, that's very significant uh, because Jesus later on, when he broke bread with them, uh, told them about the new covenant. And he said, uh, this is the, my, uh, you know, the blood body that is broken and the blood that was shed in the new covenant, the new order that was coming in. And uh, so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the one who is the initiator or the one who fulfills the working of that new covenant. And uh, so let me go back to Jeremiah because he, when you read the book of Jeremiah uh, to a large extent, he's a critique of the old because religion itself was worthless as far as Judah was concerned. God gave that old covenant. But, uh, you know, if you turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7, we find the strong critique of Jeremiah, of course, from God, about what was happening in Judah and the temple of God. And so he starts off by saying in chapter 7, verse 1, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. You know, he's talking about the entrance to the temple. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this gate, and if you do not follow other gods in your, to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in this land. I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And so, you know, Jeremiah's strong critique is that the temple was becoming a center for people to do things which were, you know, totally against God. But they were very religious. And that is why he says, don't really trust in the deceptive words which says we are in the temple of God. And then he says in verse 12 onwards, God tells them, go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling in my name, for my name. You know, when Samuel was there, that was the place where people used to go for offering sacrifice. And he says, see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. 
He says, go and see there. And he says, while you are doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust, you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will trust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for this people, he tells the prophet Jeremiah, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen. You know, basically God says these people have a way in which what I gave to them as a covenant and a place that I gave to them, they have the tendency to use it and, you know, in a way that is contrary to my character. And what God was telling them is that, you know, I have no issues in destroying that place. I have done it with Shiloh and I am not obliged just to maintain the place because religion was becoming that kind of a meaningless activity. And later on, you know, even uh, God will tell them that they, they were uh, holding on to even the word of God. And God says, you know, I don't want you to say that you have the law. Now, so basically, Jeremiah was a strong critique. The critique of religion, which was worthless. And that's what he says in chapter 7 here. He says, worthless words. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And uh, Jeremiah was critical because he was critical of the way things were being done, which was not consistent with the character of God. He was critical of the priests who actually said things which is pleasing to people. He was critical of the rulers uh, because they did not stop the decay that was taking place. And so in that context, when in, Isaiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, he says, God is going to give a new covenant. He says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. So the work of the Holy Spirit is something that is seen as contrary to the familiar ways in which people were doing. And that's why even Jesus, when they questioned Jesus as to why he was not doing certain things, which traditionally was being done by religious leaders on the religious community, Jesus' answer was, you know, you cannot put new wine in old wineskin. It is contrary, you know, it will destroy the wineskin. You cannot, you cannot combine these two. And Jesus was constantly telling them that this is different. And he was not saying that this is different in the sense it was contrary to what was earlier, but basically it is true to the spirit of what God had done when he gave them the law. And that's why in Matthew chapter five, he would say, you have heard it being said, but now I say to you, he was not setting aside the law. In fact, he said the law, he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, to really help us to understand the essence of the law. And so Jeremiah's strong words is that God is going to do something which he says he will give a new covenant with the people of the Lord. 
and that's what it is and so the holy spirit is someone who is given by god to make this new covenant you know something that would happen in us and again we have a tendency to even make this new covenant fit into our particular understanding of religion and uh, for instance a very central piece in the new covenant as jesus talked about was the fact when he broke bread as i told you and he gave it to them and uh, he was not intending it to find it to it to be practiced in the way we do it in many of our churches today because when you look at the book of acts they gathered together they broke bread and uh, you know it was almost as though it was a very informal gathering in the context of which they remembered the body of jesus that was broken and actually the blood of jesus that was shed and of course it was not something to be taken for uh, you know lightly but with where paul writes and says you know you need to take it very seriously seriously doesn't mean in a religious way but today when we think about the communion it has found an expression which has become so central in its rituals because the church itself doesn't have to have too many rituals in fact there were only two in the early church one was baptism second was the lord supper and what happened is that today when people i watch when people take communion in the church in apostles you know they almost i don't know what they do but you know i feel as though when they go to the communion place they are confessing their sins and uh, of the week or the month if it is once a month and then they seem to be making resolutions about walking you know but the communion didn't have any of those significant things you know it's just a matter of remembering the body of jesus christ that was broken and the blood that was shed and a proclamation that jesus will come again that's very simple but basically we have made it you know with a kind of a very pious uh, observation when we receive the communion and then to make things worse we also decided who is has the right to give communion and so we have said only an ordained person has to give and now those were not at all in it because the communion in the new testament was basically an alternate to the jewish festival of passover and the passover was not a temple event it that is why jesus and his friends could have passover meal together you know it was something that was done in the family and uh, but today it has it needs a specific location it needs a specific uh, you know ritual and it needs a specific person and i know that uh, you know coming from the methodist tradition all over india uh, i think the methodist church issued a statement during the lockdown the bishop said issued a statement that no communion will be served you know uh, at homes that means not by the pastors but you cannot you know observe the communion at homes but as many independent churches you know felt very you know i don't know whether they felt liberated but they wanted to ensure that the communion can be continued and so what they did was they they allowed people so i know that attending delhi bible fellowship you know last sunday was communion sunday the first sunday of the month and uh, and my brother and others they attended the methodist church and both places there was communion 
And whereas DBF, uh, you know, like many independent churches, they only announce right at the beginning, you know, have some bread and uh, whatever you can, and uh, let's break bread together. So every home, wherever it was, you know, they kept the communion. Uh, and whereas my brother was telling me in the Methodist church, unless you are present in person, you just watch. And during the lockdown, I was speaking in a Martoma church. And uh, so I joined the service, uh, you know, I, I was speaking means it was a, I think, I'm not sure whether it was an online recording. I'm not sure what it was, but I was speaking there in the church and, uh, and the service started and there was nobody there other than the, nobody means no congregation members because it was the beginning time of the lockdown. And it was a, and they have communion Sunday almost every Sunday, and the two priests were there, and you know they have a special uh, kind of uh, clothing that they have on communion Sundays or communion during communion, you know the golden thing and things like that. And there were two deacons who were present who were, uh, you know, having the incense in their hand, and uh, I was looking as to whether uh, the congregation was there, but. The pastor carried out the whole communion service and everybody was watching. It's like, you know, when you watch the, uh, you know, the temple, you know, Tirupati and other places, the opening of the thing and everybody watches online and no participation, you know, other than the four people who were there, the rest of the people were basically watching a communion. And I'm very far away from Jesus and his disciples who all broke bread, you know, so to allow people to do it, but the ritual has taken over. And uh, whereas the new covenant was not a new way of doing the ritual, but it was actually setting aside the religion with all its rituals to ensure that the relationship with, with God is authentic. And what happens here when Jeremiah talks about the new covenant, he says, God is coming when God is going to make a new covenant. And then he talks about two interesting characteristics of how this covenant or components of the covenant. He says in verse 33, the covenant I make with the people at that time, the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. A very important part of that covenant because the earlier last covenant, which was given through Moses, the central piece of that covenant was the law which was given to Moses in a written form. But in the new covenant, what happens is there is the internalization of the law. The requirements of God are made, you know, clearly, you know, are internalized into our being. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Very interesting observation of the location of the law. You know, it is in the mind because it is something that God expects us to think and do it, not simply ritualistically do it, but actually be able to think through and in the heart, I'll write it on their heart because that is seen as a place where there is a passionate obedience to the law. And so very interestingly, God says, I'm going to make he noticed from the past experience how the external giving of the law 
seem to have ended up instead of the law having a value for the people as paul would write later on in romans the the law told them what is wrong but did not give them the capacity to fulfill the expectation but now the law will be given to them in such a way it will be located in the person now it may not be all the law because it's you know unless we are reading it all the time of course jesus helped us out by saying that the whole law can be summarized in two to love the lord your god with all your heart and then he said love your neighbor as yourself and he said that is the fulfillment or it all law is summarized in that and the new testament james and others would talk about the same thing that the law has been summarized and what he says is that it will be put into our mind. And then he says in verse 34, no longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You know, it says the coming of this new covenant makes God's characteristic and God expect God's expectation internalized in us and also the knowledge of God. Now, it doesn't mean when it says that, uh, you know, no longer will they teach their neighbor, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we don't need people who are spiritually equipped to teach us. But definitely, these roles of spiritually equipped, you know, people, gifted people, is not a permanent position. Eventually, the people have to move to a place where they become mature in God. And this is described for us so well in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul talks about maturity in the body of Christ, he says here, verse 11, Christ in chapter 4, verse 11, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets and teachers, the pastors and, te pastors and teachers, to equip his people for work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know, the God has put in process a way in which we will all move towards that place. It's not automatic. As soon as we receive God's Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that we become self-sufficient in our knowledge of God's expectation. And that's why God has given people who teach and things like that. But eventually, these teachers and all are not permanent features because the body of Christ will come to a place where it says they will become mature attaining the whole measure of the fullness of God. And um, later on, it says again, that every part, you know, every, you know, we, verse 14, they will no longer be inst infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there uh, for by every, un every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemes. Because with the exercise of gifts in the body of Christ, every person in the body of Christ will grow towards maturity. And where they will come to a place that they themselves will be able to stand without being pushed by all that is happening around. 
because we'll become mature. In fact, the writer of Hebrews would say, you know, now by now you should be able to teach others. Instead, you're still immature. And so this process is what the spirit does in us. As we enjoy and as we learn and we are shaped, there will come a time when this scripture or God's expectations become internalized and no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because we will all have that deep relationship with God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes us grow deep in our relationship with God and mature in our knowledge of God. And we are able to know the mind of God. And that is basically what the Holy Spirit does here. The second thing he does, he says in verse uh, 34, the second part, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. A very important aspect of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit leads us to a place where we can turn to God and receive that forgiveness from God. And very important aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit, not only does the Holy Spirit equip us, but the Holy Spirit also changes us, transforms us. And we know that we have the tendency for our sinful nature to take control of us. But as Paul writes in Romans 8, where we saw it, you know, we walk according to the Spirit and we see the fruit of the Spirit. We receive the forgiveness of God. So the Holy Spirit's coming was this new covenant of God, which was made possible in us being restored to a relationship with God in which we are being transformed. And that's why Paul, writing in Romans 8, would talk about the Spirit as that which works in us to transform us. Now, that's basically what the prophet Jeremiah would say, is that the Spirit of God is the one through whom this new covenant of God becomes real, becomes real. It's not simply a transaction that we remember, but it is actually a relationship with God in which the Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us, lives in us. Now that takes me to the to, uh, to Ezekiel. And I'm not going to take a long time looking at it. We'll continue next week when we look at Ezekiel, because in Ezekiel, the coming of the Holy Spirit is talked about in terms of changing our very being. It says in chapter 36, this is what it says in chapter 36 and verse 24, I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you um, back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. And then he says in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Here, Ezekiel 
receives the word from God, which talks not about putting the law in our heart, but actually giving us a new heart, a new spirit in us. You know, the Paul uses the word in Ephesians when he says, you were dead in Christ, but God made us alive. It's almost like, you know, you've got a new heart now, a new heart, a new spirit to follow God. And he says, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You know, God will make us sensitive to God. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Again, the role of the Holy Spirit. God says, when God's new covenant is not given, it's not simply a new covenant in which we have a religious ritual. It is basically a covenant that becomes operational in us where it changes us in the very being. And um, I just want to stop by looking at one uh, chapter 37, where this is described so well, because Ezekiel is a book, is a prophet who received much of his instructions from the spirit of God. Because right from chapter one, it talks about the spirit taking Ezekiel, helping him to see things that God wanted him to see. And there's a lot of the spirit carrying him, lifting up. And in chapter 37, this presence of the spirit is described so beautifully when he says, the hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley bones that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put you, put you, I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel does it in verse nine. It says, prophesy to the breath, prophesy and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breathe breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And, uh, and God says again in verse 11 onwards, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. Our they say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says to you, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. You know, a very powerful imagery. Ezekiel is seeing things which are totally, you know, dead bones, as he says. You know, they cannot be revived by themselves. And unless God's spirit is poured, and the people of Israel are pictured as those who are have given up hope, and they say, 
our hope is gone and we are cut off. Our bones are dried up. And what the Holy Spirit does, and Jesus uses those powerful, that same powerful imagery when he says, I have come to give you life and life that is abundant. And Ezekiel's picture is that the Spirit of God has come, come into a people who are as good as dead. You know, Paul says, you're dead in your sins, you know, dried, hopeless. And then the Spirit revives us, brings life into that situation. And for so for Ezekiel, the giving of the Holy Spirit so radically will transform the people from being a worthless, dead community to become a vibrant, lively group. And next week, I will look at another powerful imagery in the book of Ezekiel when he talks about the Holy Spirit. So two important things is that Jeremiah talks about the giving of the Spirit in the context of God's new covenant. And the role of the Spirit is to make the requirements of this new covenant you know, something that is internalized in us. And of course, it is not on day one. And he's given us gifted people who they're teaching through their prophetic word and all those things build us to become mature in Christ until a time comes when we don't need any more external, you know, people exercising, but we ourselves, because of the spirit of God in us, will know the law, the requirements of God, and we will grow in our knowledge of God. And of course, our sins will be forgiven because the Holy Spirit will continue to convict us and we will crucify the sinful nature in the words of the New Testament. And we will put on the new, new creation. And that's basically what the Holy Spirit does. And Ezekiel says, the Holy Spirit is going to, God's new covenant is that in which he'll give us a new heart and a new spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be poured upon us so that, you know, we will again live a life with all its fullness, the vibrance of the Holy Spirit. So the quality of a spirit-filled person or a spirit-filled community is not in these external manifestations, but basically in the quality of our life, which will change. You know, in, even in situations which are difficult, you know, we would transmit to people a peace that comes from God. We will show people actually a secure relationship with God that we have. And I suppose, you know, the lack of teaching on the Holy Spirit from the prophetic books is one of the reasons we find a kind of a distorted view of being filled with the Holy Spirit, being, you know, having the Holy Spirit. Everything finds manifestation in the powerful expression of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was not given in order to specifically, the gifts of the Spirit are important, but it is not the gifts which show that we have the Holy Spirit, but it is our character change. It is our depth of our relationship with God, our growth towards maturity, our knowledge of God's characteristics, and especially the life that people can see that earlier a community or an individual who had no hope is suddenly filled with hope and lives as so contrastingly presented as dry bones again living. Thank you for taking time out and being a part of this Bible study. 
Veritas podcast is a podcast run by students and we upload every week on Wednesdays. If you find our content engaging and wish to know more, kindly subscribe to our podcast channel. Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed by this initiative.